0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcat Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-E-F-T. You're listening to episode 139. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now uh, we're back. I'm back from Palm Springs and we have a full week of podcasts available for you. Uh, just yesterday, we published the latest episode of avoiding the crowd with Maj Don where we actually continue the conversation that we had in the previous episode about form fours and insider buying. In this episode, we take it a little uh, another step further by discussing three stocks, that had some heavy insider buying last week. So go check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, and also on the website on Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. On the next episode of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reeby and Eric Fure, we, tackle some, we actually tackle a similar war story theme covered on here uh, before. Think of this as kind of like a, Time Kills All IRRs, Part 2. It's a really interesting story that you'll be able to also hear on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. And the Investors Roundtable is back this week. Tune in every Friday morning to watch the latest episode of the Investors Roundtable every week. You never know who might be joining our panel or what topic will be discussed. Just have to tune in every Friday to find out to listen to every new episode of the Investors Roundtable, please subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com snnwire And I promise audio only version is coming soon, so stay tuned for that. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Jeremy Deal, Portfolio Manager of JDP Capital Management. Uh, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, My background is Amsterdam, you know, in honor of Jeremy. He's based in Amsterdam. I thought it'd be kind of fun to uh, take everybody on a journey to uh, a a beautiful day in Amsterdam. Uh, So I I was actually originally introduced to Jeremy via Matthew Peterson. Uh, Thank you, Matthew. And, uh, And since then, Jeremy has joined us on the Investors Roundtable, specifically episode number six. And it was time to highlight Jeremy's investing philosophy and thesis. In this interview, you'll learn all about Jeremy's criteria for identifying and buying survivors and thrivers. So, thank you again for tuning in to episode 139 of the Planet MicroCap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Jeremy Deal. back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and I'm really excited for our guest that we have for you today. He's coming to us all the way from Amsterdam, hence Amsterdam. In fact, I think he sees this on his walk every single day. And so uh, w- without further ado, I got Jeremy Deal. He's the founder and CIO of JDP Capital. Jeremy, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. It's nice to be
1: able to come on here one-on-one. I think the last time we did, I've watched so many of your episodes or so many of your shows. And I think the last time, last couple of times we did this, I was part of a group. So it'd be nice to have a one-on-one chat here.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm so excited for the topics that we're going to be covering today. I think it's, it's very, very timely that to say the least and and you know i wanted to make you feel more at home you know it, look i appreciate you know, that yeah when we're on the round table you know i guess you know we can get crazy with our backgrounds but today i figured you know i'd come to you that's what we can yeah. do virtually now
1: i'm glad you didn't put san diego behind me behind you because then i'd really be missing home so <laughs> at least uh, i'm seeing what i see every day
0: hey as a graduate of uc san diego i i, I would be just tort- <laughs> i would be torturing myself too you know I, I i miss surfing blacks like none other it's too much fun but, um, let's start off, man. Uh, you know, yeah, let, let's start real quick with your background and and really when and where did your passion for investing begin? So, um, I would say
1: that the passion for investing started at a, a relatively young age, maybe not as young as, as others, but, um, the, as far back as I can remember, I was interested in business and I was interested in just economics in general. And, um, I ended up working for an entrepreneur out of college who had sold his business to Honeywell. And I was interested in investing, but I was in San Diego and it was right after the dot com bust. And there, wasn't, I, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity that I could find that was maybe in research or with a private equity fund or a, or a long only shop or some kind of real value oriented investment shop. The things I found were much more in sales and marketing, so in, in the finance world. So I went to work for this entrepreneur. And the idea was, let me learn as much about business as I can, working for him and seeing business from the ground floor up. And, and hopefully that'll either open the door for me to start investing or just learn how to become a better investor. And it was an, it was an incredible experience. It was, it was definitely the, the cornerstone and, and allowed me to um, sort of think about business in a way that gave me the confidence longer term to start the fund. And so we were manufacturing components for home security systems. So it was electronics, engineering, and manufacturing business. Uh, Most of the manufacturing was outsourced, but uh, it was a lot of engineering and design. And um, I did a a variety of things there, but mostly worked uh, with our international business. Um, So a wide variety of things from um, project management to sales to just about everything you can imagine, um, strategy, um, and it was a, we were, it was a small team. And then about a year and a half after working for this group at Honeywell, um, he invited me to go and 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 go with him in a startup. Um, and so that was a little bit of a crossroads because I had planned to try to find a way to start investing. Um, and it wasn't clear how I would go about doing that. I explored business school. It just wasn't a fit for me. Um, and he, you know, offered me a position to kind of help him start this, me and three other guys that, w- that had, we had worked together to start this business and um, so started a business competing with the business we worked for originally at Honeywell or that he had originally sold to Honeywell. Um, and so that was an incredible, incredible experience. We grew it really quickly and ultimately sold it to private equity. And after that exit, um, it was my, the opportunity for me to, to leave and, and start investing full
0: time. So Jeremy, I, you know, I have to follow up real quick. I mean, yeah. you know, you said you're, while you're working on these and doing these entrepreneurial activities and going and work for these various companies, you know, I, I'm assuming that you were doing some sort of research and trying to even figure out maybe what your investing strategy is or oh, maybe even doing something. So, yeah, you know, so
1: I had started, you know, I had read, so I guess let me back up. I was kind of living uh, two lives at once. During the day I would go to work for this entrepreneur um, right out of college. And then at night I was studying everything I could get my hands on around investing. And so it was, it was Buffett, it was the intelligent investor. Uh, it was learning how to read 10Ks. Um, it was even as far as you know, looking at private businesses that were for sale. I actually signed up with, with um, about five business brokers in California and just begged them to send me the prospectus on businesses that were for sale. Um, some of them I actually had been considered trying to find a way to raise money to buy. I looked at, I ended up looking at a lot of businesses, um, public and private while I was still working, um, you know, and, and so uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was a rough time because I wasn't a typical kind of 20, 20 something year old. It was, it was uh, all day and all night. And I had introduced myself to uh, a couple of value managers, larger value managers who had kind of given me that same encouragement, and one of them had told me, "Look, you're either born to do this or you're not. It doesn't matter if you have a CFA, it doesn't matter if you have an MBA or a PhD or whatever. Either you can throw the ball or you can't. And so the best thing you can do is just, you know, you've got 24 hours in a day, and you know, just just maximize all those 24 hours because you know I wasn't married I didn't have any kids, and so that's what I did. I worked during the day and then I worked at night on on just being fascinated with investing. I took what ended up being hundreds of of pages of notes on everything i could read i i got in touch with not just business brokers but even later on uh investment bankers to look at much larger companies for sale like companies with over 5 million in ebitda i was just studying the pitch books and i would and i'd have questions for them and and they knew i wasn't a potential buyer i i said look i'm a 20 something year old and i'm super interested in everything investing and i want to understand why this business is is being auctioned off at this price versus the public company is at this price. And so um, I would say I was, I was heavily involved in looking for my way uh, either to, you know, and, and it was always a blend of public and private investing. But Buffett and, and you know, my, my first, I, I went to Berkshire Hathaway for the first time, uh, I probably was, I don't know, in my, maybe my late, yeah, maybe my mid 20s, maybe 24 or something, 25. And, um, you know, it just it, everything sort of came together for me at that first Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And I, I spent the time uh, meeting with a lot of the, the, the private, the fully owned companies so the CEOs were on the floor. At the time, you could walk the, walk the floor during the conference and meet the CEO of, of you name the business was just kind of hanging out there and so it was at the top my my questions were more so for those people around hey what was the multiple buffett paid what was the compensation how what is it really like working for him and so i was um it was always trying to understand and make that leap between public and private investing
0: got it okay so then so real quick then made the exit and then you started jdp capital you know what was the what was the philosophy and strategy
1: Yeah, the first iteration of JDP was actually just before the, well, I guess just as the financial crisis started and it was the idea was to do more private equity. And I thought that I could buy divisions of distressed publicly traded companies or cheap because in the 90s that was a that had that was an interesting way to, to make money you could basically cold call CFOs and 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 biz dev people at these at these big public companies and say hey I'm a private equity fund and try to negotiate a division for a cheap price or for even a seller note and so some really famous private equity funds were started that way And so I thought that, hey, this is the financial crisis, I can build a model to find really distressed um, public companies, especially small caps, and I, I know they need capital or potentially will need capital. So why don't we try to buy some divisions or just get them for free. And so I made offers on I looked at a ton a ton of divisions of and they were really really low quality businesses they were you know the businesses themselves that were publicly traded were relatively low quality but then the divisions they were divesting of or because they had to divest to sell something were just terrible and the two things really happened that that were that were really transformational for me there was an aha moment where i looked up and said Wait, there's so many people bidding for these private assets because private equity is just just had an enormous amount of committed capital. People were really scared of the public markets, and so these low-quality companies were being bid up to multiples that were sometimes three to five x higher than the publicly traded parent was trading for. And it was an aha moment to me. Like, well, do we really want to put? all of our assets into some very low quality business that we're not even getting a deal on. We could just go passive and do the same amount of work and the same amount of research on the, on the public company that's divesting this and probably make a much higher return. And so after losing out on, on so many offers, um, I looked up and, and went to my the investors that had, that had you know, pledged capital I said, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I really think we'd be better off converting this into an open-ended hedge fund structure, focusing on a handful of companies, doing the same deep, deep research and just going long and holding them. And I think we're going to make a higher, I think we're going to make, I think it's a more intelligent way to invest. And so there was a, there was kind of a version 2.0 of GDP that ultimately officially started in, in 2011.
0: Got it. All right. Well, you know, this is a perfect segue to our really our main topic that, uh, that you know, we, we discussed wanting to, to really talk about today, which is this idea of your JDPs and your concept of investing, which is really focusing on survivors and thrivers, you know. Um, right. And, and as you said, it's backed up, or we said this offline, it's backed up with endless data. So we're not going to apologize for some of the data dump you're about to hear. But it's, yeah. it, trust yeah. me, it's good stuff. So, you know, <laughs> well, I, and, so,
1: and it's probably not as quantitative, uh, you know, I'm, I, it, so, so let me just start by saying, you know, the, the evolution of, of the fund, I mean, we're nine years old, so it's where it started is not where it ended. And I think I started like most deep value investors. I was you know, interested in companies that looked really cheap and that changed over time. And there were, you know, it all kind of came down to, I'd say the first couple of years, um, we looked at companies that you know mean reversion ideas, so companies that were trading for three times and we thought they were worth five times, whether that was revenue or earnings or EBITDA or whatever it is and we were for and you know that at that point with that kind of hat on you were we were forced to sell that company and so the first couple of years' returns were amazing um, but what we started to, to what I started to notice was the ones that I would sell that were much higher in quality and had the ability to reinvest and grow were outperforming the next you know third and fourth iteration of me looking for those for those mean those mean reversion situations and i started really thinking about what is it about buffett and 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 value investing that that i think is the most or the most powerful what are the most powerful lessons that buffett and graham have taught us after doing all this work and being super interested in value investing and i think the first one um, was to look at a stock and they came, The first two came from Benjamin Graham, which was look at a stock like you're buying the entire business. And Buffett talks about that as kind of the most essential lesson that he learned from Benjamin Graham. And the second thing that he learned from Benjamin Graham was in the short term, the market is a, is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And the, and the final piece came from Buffett, which was on concentration, which he said something along the lines of, Uh, uh, Diversification is great for preserving wealth, but concentration builds wealth. And I thought, you know, if you put those three together, what I'm doing, which was trying to, to buy, to look for cheap companies and sell them, has nothing to do with the way that these successful investors, or at least Buffett or other successful investors that I was interested in, had really done it and it was also trading look constantly looking for new ideas wasn't really a fit for my background and my personality I wanted the opportunity to be able to dig in deep own it know why I own a company for a long period of time and so we made that transition to looking at companies um, that we could own for a long period of time even if they were fully valued even once they had become fully valued we started thinking about you know, there was a lot of fear that every, that the market, it's always been fear that the market's always valued over, you know, so going back to 2011, people were fearing the double dip of the recession and then the European financial crisis hit. And then in 2000, there's always been an enormous fear of a correction. And, you know, when you own a company that looks statistically cheap, it seems obvious that you'd be able to go back to your investors and say look how cheap it is guys just don't worry about it it's cheap it's cheap it's cheap cheap." but we know that if we apply those so kind of buffett-esque rules that that's probably not the kind of business that he would want to own and second of all you need to know why you own the business and have a have a real margin of safety and and why you have you know you the foundation for why you have a multi-year view in order to continue to own it after it's seemingly fully valued so that led um, us to start studying and looking at data behind companies that had really outperformed the market over very long periods of time. And so one of the things we, the, the, the most important matrix that we started, or, or so, so what I think one of the screens that we started running that we thought was interesting was to look at companies from peak to peak. So looking at the whole data set of companies that um, assuming that you would bottom at the absolute peak of a, of a major cycle and held them until the next peak. So you're completely ignoring this kind of tragedy that happens between a peak and a trough. And we looked at the companies that between these m- many peaks, uh, going back as, as far as we go, I think we went back to the 1940s, so we, we didn't have enough data to go back even further. But with the data we could find, it was very obvious that that there were there were certain types of companies that regardless of if you paid the, the most, if you bought them at the absolute peak of the market and you held them throughout the next peak, that they were able to outperform in a big way. And these companies seemingly had nothing in common or seemingly have nothing in common when you look at them because they're maybe from different industries, they're different sizes, they have kind of different characteristics on on uh, at the high level. But when you dig down deep, we found four key characteristics that they had. And a lot of this goes back in, and ties back into... Um, looking at you know companies that that can just stay in business a really long time and have a, and have a moat that's protected but those the four the four components that we found were a business model that is adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy so we found the companies that could that could survive and thrive the longest had a business model that was adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy so they weren't just they weren't just stamping out the same piece of metal for 20 years, they actually were able to evolve. The second piece was they had a, they had durable pricing power that was protected by a growing competitive advantage. And they had a capital allocation strategy that supported the balance sheet and the moat. And the last piece was a, a really strong alignment of interest between management and minority owners. And so when you add all those up, you you see, When you add all those up and you overlay that into companies that have that have that have outperformed over the longest period of times from between major peaks to major peaks. um, It starts to put to perspective kind of the the things that we've evolved to start to use as our own filter we started to use and, and, and definitely use today as our filter to buy things. Now I should say we still have we do do special situations from time to time, and and um, we do have some 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 companies that, or you know maybe m- maybe a little more mean reversion or back to the old days. But right? every now and then there's something we just can't um, refuse. And it would be a small position, so something that's got maybe five or ten x upside, and it's you know something small. But for the core business, for the core fund, um, for the core strategy, I guess it's it's focusing on companies that can survive and thrive. Um, and And um, looking at how these how past survivors and thrivers have have worked out between peaks is a very, very interesting study
0: oh it 's fascinating, and it makes total sense you know especially based on your first point that you 're saying because you see it nowadays where you know, especially if you're looking peak to peak, you know, you may see maybe the industry leader that is introducing something completely new, yeah. um, at their first peak. Maybe they were way overvalued, and you see, and you see it's only because they have a model yeah. or a new technology or something new that just hasn't been done before. So the market is just overvaluing, overvaluing it when conceiving of the potential applications. And then you look at the next peak, and it's probably, and, and maybe that same company. You know based on some of your other factors that you just said once it hits the next peak you're like all right well this was clearly the industry leader because they actualized what tomorrow's economy is going to look like for whatever that industry is i mean it, it makes total sense
1: yeah and you each of these at ad- these four attributes drills down into um you know into into quantitative factors but these are the way we summarize them. Um, and at, but if if I had to summarize, people always ask, well, this, so those seem very qualitative. What quantitative things do you look for? And you know, this is again not my words, but the words of a lot of uh, several famous investors that that I'm interested in that I follow. Moat, including Buffett, uh, Moat is probably the most important thing. And so what's what really allows a company to survive and thrive for a very long period of time, meaning it outperforms the market over really long periods of time, regardless of if you buy it at the kind of a peak. Um, it's the ability to protect and and to protect its, you know, whether it's its gross margins, it, it, can, it can protects it has a moat that allows it to protect um, its its margins and its ability to grow. And so once that's protected, the ones that can really thrive are able to reinvest at incrementally higher rates of return every quarter or every year. And the longer that a company can do that, the longer runway it has to, to kind of thrive from a valuation perspective and outperform the you know the, the greater market.
0: So then what's stopping you, let's say in your strategy, and I, I'm sure this might be my my patented dumb-dumb question of, of our interview, is what what's then stopping the strategy from, you know, how do you how do you de-risk it in the sense that, all right, you may yeah. see a company that's trading at its peak right now. I don't, I'm not going to name any names, but I'm sure yeah. we can say a few, uh, right. but that, that are already trading at a certain peak. But maybe ten to twenty, or even fifteen years away from really yeah. see actualizing what it's being valued at today. You know, how, how do you stop yourself from well, making those the yeah, falling into so those I, traps?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there needs to be you know, there's no business that's worth more than its present value of future cash flows. So that's first and foremost. Um, so you you do this is a business and and i recognize i don't have permanent capital and i can't necessarily top tick something and and knowing that it's going to go down for the next you know 15 years and then somehow miraculously come back at, at you know and be a you know a 10 bagger 20 bagger in that those last you know three years of a i don't know a 20-year run or something um and and you know th- and that's the hard part about not having permanent capital but i think it's the essence and the way we think about a company um, it's more of a guiding principle than reality. And, you know, the, the goal is with such a concentrated portfolio to just be really close to these, to really close to everything we own. And, and every day is spent trying to learn more and become smarter about those companies. And so is, if, there's a, if there's a period where, or if there's, we get to a point where evaluation just doesn't make sense, or we just can't see past, you know, a five or seven year, eight year time horizon, um, then I consider selling. Absolutely. I mean, if there's, if, if, you know, it's, it's hard to go past, you know, maybe a five year time horizon or maybe a 10, five or 10 year time horizon, somewhere in that, in that range, it's, it's really hard to do that with other people's money. Um, it's one thing to, to say, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next quarter or the next year. And it could be down, you know, like stuff was down a lot in March. Well, it doesn't mean we would sell it just because it was down. No, um, but if if we felt that the earning power of the business was permanently impaired, or we had no visibility into the way the business could look in the next five or seven years, or the thesis had changed dramatically, yeah, then it's time to probably move on.
0: And and by and we should also probably clarify this idea of peak to peak because I mean, if we're talking peak to peak, just from a macro perspective, even if you're look you might even if you're looking at an individual name, it might not that name might not actually be correlated with the peak of the market either. You Absolutely. Know, you might, no, that's right, true. You know, so, so you could be looking at that at, at, from a macro perspective, but then seeing quality businesses that, you know, maybe still trading, a, you know, well above their 52-week lows, but not not continually hitting new 52-week highs, you know, as the market continues to go up. So there's a little bit of alpha there as well.
1: Absolutely. no, there's you know, so um, the peak to peak that, or the, the peak that people are talking about now, it's just a little more relevant, uh, I guess, because tech seems to you know is, is outperforming traditional businesses. Um people talk a lot about dot com. and it wasn't but a couple of years ago that, that the that the peak people were talking about was the two thousand seven the, the October seven, two thousand seven peak, which was the peak before the financial crisis. So um, we had done a lot of work on that peak to peak. And published results of companies that had outperformed, and 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 um, the, and also the inverse of that: companies that don't meet the survivor and thriver criteria that were were cheap then, and then and never really recovered, and, and continued to underperform the market for for really long periods of time. And it didn't matter if you bought them at the peak or not, or if you bought them at the bottom; they still just sucked. So um, now the the focus, I guess, is is a little bit more on this dot com peak um, and. You know the same principles apply, and actually, it's an even more dramatic um, story of peak to peak, depending on how you depending on how you want to look at it.
0: Well, let's dive a little deeper in there because that was actually one of the questions yeah. that that I wanted to uh, to ask you about. I, is and this is, I'm sure, where we're going to get the data dump. So, so Jeremy, you know, uh, Kias. Yeah, in and, I, and
1: again, you know, I I some of the stuff I published some of it on the website, but um, so. So I think it's important to 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 think about. Um, there's a there's a big difference between calling a market or like you said, just kind of you know making a forecast about a market or observing a market peak or a market trough, and the and, and individual businesses. So the dot com period, um, you know, kind of Buffett was was famous for almost top ticking it when he when he wrote this really famous um, piece in in Forbes. And he gave a speech and and I I wrote it here and it was, uh, let me read it, it was on November 22nd, 1999. And the actual peak was not that long after, it was actually October 7th, no, I'm sorry, September 1st, 2000. And he says, I think it is very hard to come up with a pervasive case that equities will ever, the next, over the next 17 years, perform anything like, and he writes anything like again, they've performed in the past 17 years. So he was right. Um, the NASDAQ you know, fell 78% the, um, from peak to trough. Um, the S&P fell about 46%. And again, I, I may not have all these numbers um, exactly correct. I'm just using a lot of Cap IQ data but I think what, what gets and, and, and again, to his point, um, let's just see how he was right and he was absolutely right that you know, he was calling the next 17 years. So the prior 17 years before the, the um, SPY had been up 224 percent with dividends and the NASDAQ had been up 455 percent. And the following 17 years, um, the, the S&P was only up 112 percent, including dividends, which is about half. And the NASDAQ was only up 58 percent so um you know it was he was absolutely right but i think what what is really fascinating about it is um if you drill down what actually was happening below the surface um it you know so that that statistic definitely does not tell the whole story so i think that tells the whole story if you're an index investor or if you're a passive investor putting your money in some kind of a schwab account or if you have a financial planner that's just kind of putting it over a wide, diversified basket of things. I think that kind of thing is is really important. But if you're a long-term investor and you have what you feel is some kind of business insight on a handful of businesses that you believe will survive and thrive over a long period of time, um, this kind of fear uh, about this kind of next, uh, a peak or a trough or whatever is, is less relevant to you. So, um, some interesting things. So some of the, 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 the trough though um, to today is kind of is kind of a side note that's not a peak to peak, but uh, as just a, a student of, of financial history, I find that some of the most fascinating numbers I've ever seen in, in markets are that kind of trough to, to kind of to today. And so as we were talking about a little bit before the show, um, I'll just read some interesting statistics. Um, you know, so the NASDAQ compounded at 14.3% annually for the next, you know, 18 years. So this is trough 2000, 2001 um, through today. And a third of those companies uh, were, were 10 baggers or more, which is really interesting. So, and in, in the trough to peak produced 2,300 baggers and more than 50, 50 baggers. So you had a lot of companies like companies like Netflix was 137, 135,000% booking up 25,000% Boston beer up 6,200% and and, and so these, I don't know, Decker's outdoor, it's just the list goes on, Decker's outdoor up 20,000%. So was the market right that just you know, was the market right to sell everything off? So it's, of course there's gonna be businesses that were really overvalued and we can get into that later and, and what was actually going on at that time versus not. But um, what I think we can switch to is kind of the, the peak to, to today. So if we kind of back out and we reran that and we go back to um, the absolute peak of, of the dot-com boom, and we all went away. Uh, on a desert island and what would kind of what would have happened if 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 looking back 20 years you know how bad would it actually have been so yeah you know, it wasn't great but it also wasn't as bad as i think most people think so the s p compounded at about 6.2 percent a year 238 percent and then Nasdaq compounded about 182 or it, it was up at 182 percent or 5.3 percent annually so um more than about 60 percent so what we did to to look at peak to peak let me back up is we looked at companies that were continuously traded, so it's it's a little bit of a disadvantage because there's a lot of companies that that are no longer that no longer exist or went out of business or were merged or whatever that are not part of this study. Um, so the company had to been, had to start with 250 million or more market cap, so it had to be investable. So we kind of ignored you know anything below 250 million in market cap, so ignored all the little little small stuff. And we looked at things, like I said, that were continuously in business from, from that peak till today. So it produces only about 1,150 companies, but I think it's, and it's not going to be absolutely accurate. If we had a list of all the companies, we got to see all the failures, um, the, 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 the outcome would, it would look different. But I think it is interesting to start and look at the companies that, you know, the companies that did survive at least the whole time Did they thrive or not? And how did they look at the end? And how correct was the market? And for the companies that did thrive, what were the characteristics of those businesses? And how could you have have thought about them? So some interesting statistics. So of that data set that I just explained, which again is definitely far from perfect, more than 60% of all the companies from peak to today. So peak.com to today beat the market. Uh, or beat the S&P 500 and the top 25% uh, returned 3,700%. Companies like Apple were up 13,600%, Monster Beverage, 77,000%, Texas Pacific Land Trust, 7,700%, Moody's up 3,000, Activision Activision up 8,000. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's actually a fascinating look to think Wow, for such a dramatic period in time, where everybody really felt like they—they, they, you know—they were—they were—they learned the Tooth Fairy wasn't real—to have those kind of returns. If you had just bought okay companies or companies that you thought could have could have could have continued to survive and thrive, um, what the outcome would have been, and just completely ignored the bottom. The inverse of this is also really interesting to think about. So many of the bottom never recovered. And the bottom, I think most people think, well, these must have been just been shell tech companies or, or kind of remember there was this documentary called dot com or something. There was a documentary yep. about a startup that busted, and they raised a bunch of money and it went to zero. Well, many of the bottom performers, the ones that are still around that collapsed, um, never recovered. So the bottom Never recovering companies like, for example, Revlon um, down ninety percent, Rite Aid down eighty four percent. Now this is this is from then to now. So these are companies that continue to survive the whole time, and probably I don't know how they looked if they if they looked cheap relative to that time period or not. But Revlon, Rite Aid, uh, right down eighty four percent, Goodyear Tire down forty eight percent, Micron Technologies, which is a company a lot of people are familiar with today, was down, is still down forty one percent from that dot-com peak. Um, but again, um, so the story of the NASDAQ being overvalued and, and the market being overvalued at the time was right. But does that mean that, that you can't find, not gems, but just, just can't put a little bit of work into a company or come up with a framework that allows you to think about a company and how it's going to, how it's going to um, continue to go, you know, what's going on in the business.
0: I mean, it, it, it's still so hard because I mean, even, you know, those statistics are incredible. I mean, there's, I definitely found myself on certain days when I'm looking at Apple or, or Netflix, you know, and going back to the chart from 2001 or 2000 and just like, oh. Just, just to depress myself, of course, you know, with the hindsight bias. But, you know, thinking about a Netflix, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder neither. But but thinking about a yeah, Netflix Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a holder of <laughs> any of the companies I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but like thinking about a Netflix, for instance, I mean, you you think about and, and you try and draw parallels to today. You know, you think about a Netflix right. at the time. Like I remember being a subscriber to Netflix and getting the DVDs every, I forgot how often they can, or as soon as you sent them back, right? Like how could you have possibly thought that, okay, they're going to eventually chain, turn this into a streaming, streaming business? I mean, I, being yeah. that I was a user at the time, I guess I could have seen it, but then when you take the next level and think about the economics of it, well, how are we going to think, how are we supposed to think that that was eventually going to be successful and then convert that yeah. into having all this cash to then invest in their own yep. content. I mean, it, yeah. you, you almost have to be a futurist, let alone an Oracle. Not
1: necessarily. I, I think that, I think that what I've, what I've, what this recent dislo- what this recent kind of market, market um, I don't know, volatility or what COVID has, has really surfaced for me, looking at, at peers and, and just generally market participants. Most people don't really know what they own. Most people, um, just you know, t- traditional value matrix around balance sheet and income statements and 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 whatnot. I mean, they they're a fit for mature businesses, and that is you know looking at a company's financial matrix is a very small step, and I think it's a very important step to understand how a business makes money and how they will make cash flow in the future. But it is nowhere near the end of the work that that I think a business owner investor, somebody that's following these Buffett rules, somebody that's thinking in terms of buying a stock like they're buying a whole business. And I think I would put it back on on other people. I would say, you know, people that that think like that, I would say, look, if you were truly if you're really a value investor and you hold those values true, that you're buying a stock like you're buying a whole business, you mean to tell me that you would just buy any business just because it was cheap. And most people that if they said yes they don't have any experience buying and owning companies. They don't have any experience uh, with, with buying and holding a company for a really, really long period of time that they, where they don't control the cash flows and they're not being paid on distributed cash flows or IRR like a private equity fund did. Because if you let price dictate everything you do, the best case scenario is you'll have to trade a lot. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that you end up generating a probably a high tax bill. Which you, the, the the well, I'd say the typical case is you'll end up underperforming the longer you go out, and that's why you see a lot of lot of managers, a lot of fund managers, when you get out really long, like twenty plus years, they just can't beat the market, and it's because there's an over reliance on the past financials. And so I think the question is maybe you couldn't have, but maybe, but there are people that, that were deep enough into Netflix and understood what was happening in the business to, to make that kind of bet because it's a Netflix in and of itself is a fascinating story. And there's a lot of, a lot of work that's been done out there. There's a lot of podcasts on the history of Netflix and and Reed Hastings and how it worked and the different iterations of the business. But from a fundamental perspective, um, in order to own something a long time, you need to understand how the business uh, works and you need to have a perspective on how the business is going to be more relevant in the future than in the past. So that means the company is going through enormous transitions. And so instead of focusing on how, did, what did the earnings look like this quarter, I think it's important in order to do this kind of investing. And I'll say there's people that are making money. People can, there's people successful doing all kinds of, there's all kinds of styles that work, right? There's global macro guys that are successful, There's short funds that are super successful. There's, you know, day traders that are successful. There's all kinds of stuff, but, but to, to, to be a concentrated investor in companies with a five plus year time horizon does require a lot of work on understanding what's happening in the business and uh, and and what's happening in the sector and it's a full-time job and um it's not as simple as just screening for past numbers and extrapolating them into the future linearly especially
0: well no i think i think the main thing thesis here and and it goes back to i mean a number of investors have come on here and, and said similar things but i think you're really driving this point home is that look At the end of the day you can do all the work you want on past financials and doing your valuation and seeing if it you know is is it cheap not cheap fairly valued what have you but if you truly know the business very well and you have that I'd, i'd argue even three to five or longer year time horizon you know you could probably get a good idea of what future trends are coming and how that business you own might take advantage of that or evolve in order to capitalize on that. Am I kind of hitting on that's, that's what you think. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I, and I think today what's happening is, is what, where people are misunderstanding and, and, and I think where people get it wrong and is, and where I've been guilty of getting it wrong is misunderstanding where the, the battleground, so to speak, is where the, where the fight is actually happening. So, um you look at two businesses and you may think that it's all about for example I don't know just selling advertising but in fact it's something different. Um and so where the business where the business where the battle is being fought is is evolving all the time. It's never as simple as I stamp a widget out, I I invest in a widget, I stamp it out, I sell it because um those business, mo- business models are constantly changing. The way we buy things, the way we interpret things, the way business is done, um, the digitalization of the enterprise, all of this is changing so rapidly that you need to have a view on that. And so just sitting back and just assuming that everything just mean reverse back to the way it is or was is I think uh, uh, you know, a recipe for, for maybe not failure, but it's a recipe to underperform.
0: I mean you know, not to bring up a name that you own, but I mean, you've talked about it previously on on other roundtables, you know we talked talking about your investment in Spotify. You know, yeah. just, lo- just, just looking at that as, a, as an example, a full disclosure, I'm not a, a shareholder, but just looking at that as an example, I mean, I, I, I was a subscriber to Spotify just for having access to all this music. And now you're yeah. seeing the huge pivot into podcasting. You know, every one of my yeah. shows is now uploaded on there and they're allocating a lot of capital to develop original shows and buying Gimlet, buying, buying uh, The Ringer. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's it, it, you know, that, that's a perfect example.
1: Spotify's been an investment of JDP for for I don't know maybe yeah, I don't know, you, just shortly after it went public um, and the stock was flat for a long time um, it went public with a, in just a you know in, in a way that just allowed people to just start bidding on it so they didn't do a typical underwriting process Uh, which I, and I I also admire, you know, the the founders didn't sell any stock into that and they didn't use the IPO to raise any money because they've been self-funding for a really long time. But um, Spotify, like, like all of our core investments um, have the luxury of reinvesting a hundred percent of their gross margin back into the business and incrementally higher rates of return than they did the year before or the quarter before. And, we're attracted to Spotify because we're seeing that not only is the user base growing, but uh, globally, and they are such, they're such a, a, a leadership position over the competition, but it's not just that we felt like the, we're seeing that the, the, the that the users are spending uh, subscribers are spending more and more time, um, on the app than other than, than the competition. So I believe today the average Spotify user spending 25 hours a month on the app, and that's continuing to grow as they add more services and add more value uh, like podcasts. So um, you know Spotify is absolutely an example of a company undergoing a major transition. Um, the way they started in the original business model, is simply music streaming <clears throat> and sharing that revenue and paying, paying, the, paying the, 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 big, the big labels for, for the music. For a license is not at all the way Spotify is evolving to or is looking. Yes, they'll continue to pay for music, but um, you know the the value you want to own the company that controls, as Ben Thompson says, controls the demand, not the supply. So um, with with you, you want to own the company that controls and determines who is listening to what, uh, because that is ultimately the person that can extract the most value. And, and we call it kind of the rail, the railroad of, of audio. And so I think people will be surprised of since, you know, the, of, of the number of businesses and opportunities that they can build on top of that user base as time goes on to um, increase pricing power. And because at this point, you're just adding so much value to your life. Um, that it's just harder and harder to say no, um and yeah. So I don't need to go on and on about a pitch on Spotify, <laughs> but, but no, no, of course. And, and, I wasn't, and, but, and, like, and that was, but
0: I, wasn't, I do uh, think it's yeah.
1: it's an absolute. So we do see it as a survivor and thriver, and it's one that we're not concerned about. um You know, at any given point, whether the stock is at a hundred. I mean, I think we paid one hundred and thirteen or one hundred and fifteen a share or something. Whether it's now two hundred and eighty or whatever it is, like it's. We're, we're looking out over the next um, five years and we see a company that is only scratching the surface at what is possible in audio. Um, and we also see a company that just has really no competition, even though it feels like you can, oh, I can stream this music on, on Apple. I can stream this music on, on, Amazon, but those are just, those are secondary auxiliary businesses they are just streaming catalogs. They're not focused on kind of owning that, what we call the audio railway. And um, I think people are going to be, again, I think people are going to be surprised about the opportunity that it's, it's already unlocking um, for not only margin expansion, but just just growth um, and the flywheel that, that's starting there. So it's a survivor and driver, and one that we want to own, whether the price is 280 or whether the price is 50, um, we're, we're really excited about what's happening in that business.
0: Very good. Well, you know, are you already used that as an example. So, I mean, the main thing that I think people probably listening to this want to know then, you know, in our current market right now, I mean, how do you go about then identifying companies like a Spotify right now?
1: So it's it's really hard. Um, we only have a handful of portfolio <laughs> companies.
0: It's, it's just really hard. you're constantly hard. <laughs> questioning yourself.
1: You know, they, and I, I, always question myself and every day I get up every day I start reading I read something new Do we have a process where we cycle through the holdings and and focus on different parts of the business or different different parts of the sector Um, and yeah I don't think you can be in this business and not constantly second guess yourself Um, it's hard to to you know, ignore Mr. Market. It's hard to just really have your head deep in the, in the business in the game and have a goal like Gavin Baker says of being in the 1% of knowledgeable shareholder of, of knowledgeable holders of the company. Um, and you know, that it's, I would say there's not there's nothing easy. I mean, even this year we, we try to, to trade very, very little, but definitely there's mistakes. I mean, um, Sometimes you, you buy something that you think is a survivor and thriver, and then you get deep, deep into it and you realize, maybe it's a year later, maybe it's six months later, that one of those four key attributes uh, is not being met. And, and that's, happened, that's happened several times. Um, and I think you have to start with, in order to get become that knowledgeable about a business, you have to focus on a, se- a specific sector that you know well, or are really passionate about, or interested in becoming an expert in. And maybe, maybe making an investment, and then le- and letting that circle of competence grow over time. So, um, over the last nine years, I've covered and invested in a wide variety of things. Um, and there's a handful of sectors that are just naturally I've naturally gravitated to um, that I like, that I'm interested in, that I want to study seven days a week, whether it's for the fund or not. Whether and I would invest in privately and for the fund or whatever. i just I would just do that regardless, whether it was on vacation or whether it's at 10 a.m. on a Monday. Um, and I think that that's the best source of, of, of finding companies that you that you want to you get that deep into or companies that you're really interested in. Because in order to understand a company, in order to put that much time into it, you have to be passionate about it. If you're not interested in banks or you think that's boring, there's no way you're going to ever have an advantage just by buying and holding a bank be, based on book value growth. Or it's discount or premium to book value. That's not an advantage. Um, time in and of itself is not an advantage. It's it's the the time is only an advantage for the business owner when there's when there's compounding value happening that's that's significant behind behind the uh, you know behind the curtain. And in order to get there, you have to you, you have to you have to be uh, really passionate about figuring it out. And it's not easy.
0: Nope, I I couldn't agree more with that. So Jeremy, we're we're starting around the bend here. So I, I my favorite question I like to ask everybody on here, what what is what what's an investing experience that you'd say impacted you the most in your career?
1: Um so it was probably one of the first survivor and thriver companies that we invested in um and learned about this idea of you know when it was the aha epiphany moment of moving from, you know just cheap companies to companies that could reinvest at a high rate of return. Um, well, there's actually two, but the first one was called Cyrus One. And it was uh, one of the first publicly traded, I don't think there were maybe two before it, um, REITs, so a real estate investment trust that owns data centers. And it was a spin out of Cincinnati Bell. And I found it looking through Ted Welchler's final 13F filing of his fund before he went to go work for Berkshire Hathaway. And he had this position in uh, Cincinnati Bell. And I just couldn't understand why on earth he would own this seemingly melting ice cube. And I dug a little deeper and found that buried inside this company was this high growth, incredible real estate business, this data center REIT um, that, that does outsource data center space for, for, the, fortune, for the Fortune 1000. And so um, th- through that experience, uh, what, so the company went public in 2010, um, And then I think, no, it was it 2000, I'm sorry, 2012. Um, And we ended up buying it in 2013 because the stock dipped quite a bit because people, I know the sell side had a, I don't know, 13 or $14 price target on it. And they did people, the world didn't understand why in the future data center, real estate was going to be important because at the time people thought, well, if it is important, it's going to be all controlled by Google. And Amazon. But in fact, Google, Amazon, and Apple were outsourcing some of their data center needs to pure play real estate investors. And so they also had a big bank of real estate um, and they were investing almost all of their available free cash flow um, into hiring sales and just really building out their business, which was very different than traditional real estate businesses that, that a lot of time just serve to pay dividends. Um, and pay everything out. So it was more of a growth business that had this um, amazing position in the sector. And it was at a time when um, the the really big companies still owned and controlled their own data centers. And they were starting to outsource that. I mean, JP Morgan, Bank of America started doing sale leasebacks and and letting letting third parties manage and own and and enter into really long-term real estate leases um, and the economics behind those, those, those leases are different than traditional real estate. And um, there's just a lot of growth. So looking back, we paid, I don't know, something that would be like buying it for a 30 cap or a 40 cap, something in, in present day terms, which is, seems almost impossible. But um, if you look at the price we originally paid versus where it ended up going to uh, longer term, but it screened fully valued for a long time and ultimately compounded with dividends at uh, over 400 percent before we sold it. So that was probably um, at the time we started looking more. Another one was Live Nation, um, and and the merger with Ticketmaster. So there was a handful of investments that were. Um, that were kind of that kind of birthed the the idea of, of of at least me getting comfortable with with looking for and putting that lens on of companies that could survive and thrive um, even if we missed or you know even if we would continue to own and let them compound
0: even if they seem fully valued at any given point. So, Jeremy we're there, you know, uh, real quick, before I let you go, you know, what what would, what's some advice that you have for new investors looking to invest in the stock market right now?
1: Just, just looking to invest in the stock market. Well, if they're that early, I mean, if they're that just, they don't know anything about it. I mean, I'd say, you know, like I tell my mom, just put some percentage of your, of your excess cash in in the S and P every month forever. And that's the same thing Buffett says. Um, And if you're just going to, ultimately invest in a wide of a diversified pool of stocks you don't need to pay anybody to do that you don't need to pay a financial planner or a financial advisor um so if you're just getting started or or you just want to have exposure and you're worried about is this the peak or is this a trough or where are we or what ending are we in just add every month at the end of every month um and then over a period of time you'll probably outperform you'll be surprised that that you probably outperformed uh a lot of people or most investors. So that would be my advice. um, If you, if you just want to own the market, so to speak, and not drill down and look at companies.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, how about for those who maybe have been following the markets forever and are looking at individual stocks, you know, what, what, what's some of your advice there?
1: I would say one of the best pieces of advice is what Buffett said. If you're not willing to own it for 10 years, don't even take a look at it so you know he talks about the punch card analogy the 20 punches i think that's one of the most important lessons again that buffett preaches that a lot of value investors have steered away from or reinterpreted over the last you know 20 years or however long ago or 30 years however long ago he said it but you know some of these are really timeless and important uh really important things to think about you know if you only had if you could only make 20 investments over your lifetime would this one stock i'm looking at and make the cut And so if you're really gonna make, if you're gonna do the work and you wanna invest in individual businesses, the most important thing is to think like a business owner and to think um, in terms of, you know, I'm buying this stock because I'm buying this, I'm looking at this stock like I'm buying the whole business. And if I only get 20 20 punches, is this one of those that I wanna own? And then how will that business look in 10 or 10 plus years? And if you're not willing or able to do that, because you have to keep looking at your phone and you have to worry about Fed policy and you have to worry about gold and you have to worry about what every macro person or talking head says all the time and, and it's just too much for you to bear, then you should go back to just investing in the S&P slowly every month. But if you really can, can find conviction in something that you wanna own for 10 plus years, um, that would be, that would be you know kind of listening and going, reverting back to those original Buffett um, principles on looking at a stock like you're buying the whole business and what does that mean if we're buying the whole business and not selling it because at some point it will become fully valued based on interest rates and based on its sector at the time but you still have to own it so if you still want to own it fully valued uh, because it's something that you are fascinated with and believe in i think that's the the hurdle that that uh, stock should have to achieve before it makes it into your whether your personal portfolio or us as a fund
0: well, Jeremy, with that, where can my audience go and find you on Twitter and social media, as, as well as for more information about JDPCAP?
1: Yeah, so JDPCAP.com, and uh, you can sign up for our, um, you know, we have monthly updates, not performance updates. where We send out something, uh, a little newsletter called, uh, um, what is it called? I don't even remember now. It's called uh, Worth a Look. So it's an interesting curated, something curated that we've come across um, about one of the industries that we're following or we're invested in. So we do a little write up and it's maybe a video or an article that is um, out of the way and, and maybe less known and then our, our two cents on it. So we do send that out once a month. So if you go to the website and sign up and you also get our, our quarterly and and um, you know our, our quarterly uh, performance as well. And on Twitter, I'm just uh,
0: Jeremy Deal. So at Jeremy yeah. Deal, so pre original. Perfect. All right, well, <laughs> Jeremy, dude, uh, thank you so much for taking the time yeah, today. Yeah. And also, yeah. I appreciate you uh, uh, delaying fifteen. I, it's my first time back at the office in a couple of weeks, and I guess LA traffic is now back. So I, uh, uh, right. I, I, I back I, to the office. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, real quick, again, before I let you go. Do you own, other than Spotify, which um, you've it, you said that it's in the fund, you know, do yes. you own any of the stocks that you mentioned? Um, no, I today? no, I do not. No, I do not. No. Perfect. All right. Well, now I can let you go. Go enjoy and the and rest one of your more day. Thing,
1: yeah. if, if listeners are interested in looking at any of the peak to peak, we have a breakdown of it. If, if they send me an email to the, to the website, happy to send you um, any of the data that I mentioned here today or any of the peak to peaks from the past that we've looked at um, uh, just just send me an email.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, Jeremy, now I can let you go. Go enjoy the rest of the day in Amsterdam. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you. Bye. podcast. podcast.